Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Um, I wanted to start out tonight actually with that PSA that you just heard um, because I want to remind everyone if you or let you know if you didn't already know that May is in fact um, Mental Health Awareness Month and um, it's something that I'm very, very passionate about and I want to... I, I try and always play that PSA because I think it's really important for people who are struggling to reach out if you can. Um, but hopefully you're here to hear about some science and you're not uh, <laughs> in need of a helpline. But in case you are, it's out there. All right, so let's get into tonight's stories. So we're actually going to talk about a bunch of things like we often do, um, but I think that I tried to sort of group them around the idea that they're somewhat unexpected or non-intuitive or um, surprising. And unintentionally, though, several stories ended up involving or mentioning dinosaurs, um, which we did talk about last week, but um, I think that these stories are pretty fascinating. So, and like I said last week, lots of people love dinosaurs. Pretty much everybody loves a dinosaur. So, um, hopefully you won't mind if I continue to talk about them this week. But first off, we're going to start with a story that has nothing to do with dinosaurs. Um, it actually has to do with violins. So pretty much Everyone has heard of Stradivarius violins and their serious reputation as head and shoulders above all other violins. However, it turns out that in a blind sound check conducted by researchers recently, these famed and extremely expensive instruments did not actually hold up against more modern instruments. It turns out that, like many other things that have been considered to be known wisdom, it may be more folklore, myth, and a hearty uh, dose of the placebo effect that has kept the Stradivarius a household name, even in households that don't have a classical music aficionado. So it's why, in 2011, the Lady Blunt... Uh, Strad, because of course they all also have their own special names. Uh, it sold for $15.9 million. And so it turns out that actually for decades, blind tests have shown that listeners really can't tell the difference between a Strad and other old master violins against modern violins. And in 2014, Claudia Fritz, a musical acoustician, at Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris, and Joseph Curtin, who is a respected violin maker in Ann Arbor, Michigan, they reported that in a double-blind test with 13 new violins and nine old Italians, 10 of the world's best violinists generally preferred the new violins. And in a new study, they've expanded it to be fully double-blind. Both the violinists and the audience were unaware of the origin of the violin. Now, I especially like <laughs> what they did in order to blind the violinists. They gave them a modified set of welding goggles in order to keep them from being able to tell exactly what the uh, violin looked like, which I just thought was a great visual. 
So the violinist played the same excerpt of music on nine possible pairings of violins, using three strads and three modern violins. Fifty-five listeners then rated which of the two violins they preferred in each pairing. So they basically used a sliding scale, violin A at one end, violin B at the other, and they were they gave the listeners the ability to sort of put their mark anywhere along that scale as to which one they thought was um, better. And so, and they left that open-ended to them as to what they considered to be, you know, better and more, um, to be, have more volume and um, richness in the music. And so the results, though, were pretty clear-cut. Modern violins fared better in blind tests. But, of course, this probably won't affect the price of old master violins. One of the bedrocks of the entire idea of value is that what people believe something should be valued at is what people value it at. And the perceived value of a Stradivarius seems to be impervious to the reality that modern violins are actually better sounding. Um, And in fact, Fritz notes that it may indeed be that under certain certain circumstances, a Stradivarius will indeed sound better to people. If you know it's a Strad, you will hear it differently, she says, and you can't turn off that effect. And so the researchers note that even though this isn't necessarily a triumph for science and common sense, it is good news for violinists who can feel confident with a good quality modern violin rather than pining away, wishing that they could afford a Stradivarius. So that's pretty cool. Um, And I do, I mean, obviously, again, that is kind of a mixed story because it's very cool to find that you know, you can do these kind of qualitative tests and really see that modern violins are better. Um, I wish it had a slightly happier ending wherein we said, hooray, modern violins and not, well, under certain circumstances and, you know, for certain values of X, um, you know, we're still going to do this. Um, But I also understand how when something has that kind of value, it's very hard to come along and say, actually, no, it doesn't have that kind of value. But these things happen. So let us move on and talk about the music of the stars, um, as they say. So um, what I wanted to talk about was Trappist One. And so the TRAPPIST-1 system, that is the system that's been in the news recently and that I've been kind of down on, Um, I will admit, um, (laughs) it is a dwarf star that has several Earth-sized planets, um, Earth and Venus-sized planets circulating around it. Orbiting, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, orbiting around it. And they are very close to the star, and the star is a very small star. And there's been a lot of back and forth as to whether or not they would be habitable. They're in the habitable zone, but there's been some other things that suggest that even though they're in a habitable zone, they might be tidally locked, which would make it much harder for life to survive and things like that. But that's not what I want to talk about tonight. 
what I want to talk to you about tonight is some of its other extremely cool properties. So it turns out that when researchers looked at the orbits of the planets around the dwarf star, they noticed something odd. If you simulate the system, the planets start crashing into one another in less than a million years. This may seem like a long time, but it's really just an astronomical blink of an eye, said Dr. Dan Tamayo, a postdoctoral researcher in the Center for Planetary Science at the University of Toronto at Scarborough. It would be very lucky for us to discover TRAPPIST-1 right before it fell apart, so there must be a reason why it remains stable, he noted. So, Tameo and co-authors published a new paper in Astrophysical Journal Letters, which suggests a solution for the incongruous results. They suggest that the planets form what is called a resonant chain, which acts to stabilize the system. Resonant planets orbit their sun in whole number ratios. For instance, in our solar system, Neptune travels around the sun three times while Pluto orbits twice. This is extremely important because otherwise Pluto would have crashed into Neptune at some point in the early development of the solar system. So Dr. Matt Russo, a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics work, um, noted that there is a rhythm, rhythmic repeating pattern that ensures the system remains stable over a long period of time. Russo and Tamayo worked with Toronto musician Andrew Santaguida to, to create an animation that describes the system's orbits. Luckily, it is, there is a part of it that is very much musical rather than visual. And so in the simulation, a piano note plays each time one of the planets passes in front of the dwarf star. A drum beats every time a planet overtakes its nearest neighbor and the results are quite pleasing so i'm actually going to play a little bit of that for you now um so hang on so the thing that stuck out to me most about the trappist one system was this amazing pattern of resonances how each planet's orbit is a simple ratio of its neighbors and i realized that that's the exact same thing that makes music sound good and that makes it rhythmic So we simulated the system. We scaled their orbital frequencies into the human hearing range. And made it play a note for every time a planet transits in front of the star. So this may sound like a remarkable coincidence, but it turns out that the system was tuned this way early on when it was evolving. Then we added a drumbeat for every time a planet passes its neighbor. Finally, we converted the star's brightness data into sound and included it for a little more flair. It's kind of funny because most planetary systems are like bands of amateur musicians. They're all playing parts, but at different speeds. TRAPPIST-1 is different, though. It 
It's like a supergroup where all seven members are synchronizing their parts in nearly perfect time. It seems somehow poetic that this uh, really precise clockwork configuration that, that allows us to generate this beautiful music can at the same time be responsible for the system surviving to the present day. Okay, so that was a little bit of the um, audio from the animation, and you can find that on YouTube. Uh, it's called The Song of a Solar System, Trappist One. And um, this is actually on the Thought Cafe channel. So, um, yeah, I think that's really amazing. And so um, you may have heard it, but just to reiterate, they uh, say that most planetary systems are like bands of amateur mu musicians playing their parts at different speeds. TRAPPIST-1 is different. It's a supergroup with all seven members synchronizing their parts in nearly perfect time. And there was Dr. Russo talking there. And so what they ended up doing was that because they knew there had to be a precise ratio in order for the system to work, their original computer models were limited. And so that's why every time they modeled it, everything would crash because they were unable to properly recreate the system orbits with what little information they were gleaning. So what they ended up doing was instead, they started from the standpoint of the beginning of the system. And that allowed them to create a stable model that just, again, happens to make some pretty nice music. It seems somehow poetic that this special configuration that can generate such remarkable music can also be responsible for the system surviving to the present day. And that was Dr. Tamayo um, that you would have heard. Okay, so that is some fun and interesting news about TRAPPIST-1. I still don't think we're going to go there any day soon. Um, and I still have feelings about um, exoplanets and how they're often marketed. But this is very cool. I always love, um, and I also love when scientists create these kinds of visualizations and, um, you know, audio translations in order to give people a better idea of how, what they're doing about what they're doing and about what their research shows. It's why I love infographics. Um, I think that it's a really important skill to be able to help people who don't know a ton about astrophysics understand what's going on. And so I'm really pleased with this whole thing. And I definitely would give it a um, full look. I will link to the video on the Facebook um, after the show. Okay, so I said we were going to talk about dinosaurs again. <laughs> and so I do actually have a couple of specific dinosaur stories and then a couple that only mention them in passing. So the first one I wanted to talk about was something that I almost got to last week, but just didn't get a chance to get to. And so that is the fact that researchers have been doing some really serious work recently in the um, Chicxulub crater. And so that is the impact crater from the uh, asteroid that hit the Earth and basically was one of the death knells of the dinosaurs and actually 
much of life on Earth. <laughs> and so one of the things that they realized was that dinosaurs were pretty much very, very unlucky. Uh, it is pretty sad and unfortunate that the giant meteor uh, fell in right that particular place. <laughs> so if it had waited just a few minutes longer or been just a few minutes faster, it would have caused substantially less damage to the planet. The area where the crater hit was not only problematic due to being earth rather than water, but that earth was largely limestone. And it turns out that the limestone was what spelled doom for many organisms. The limestone would have contained sulfur that would have created an envelope around the earth, smothering it for several years. And so it would have blocked out the sun, uh, creating what they often refer to as a sort of nuclear winter. And so the researchers found that around 93% of the nanoplankton in the ocean was killed as a result of the impact. And in fact, as I noted, around three-fourths of all life all over the planet was, uh, went distinct shortly after this um, impact. And so this was a big deal. <laughs> and unfortunately, it was a bad day for life on Earth. Though, what one has to note is that it was a good day for us. Because if it hadn't happened, there is no guarantee that we would be here today. Um, there might be super evolved dinosaurs here today. Who knows? Um, if you're old enough to remember, I remember when I was in grade school... In the uh, nurse's office, there was this famous picture where someone had uh, sort of extrapolated what a dinosaur might have evolved into if they hadn't uh, gone extinct. And it looked very much like basically a person with <laughs> scales. And I always felt kind of dubious about it and also a slightly creeped out. And obviously, it's something that stuck with me. I mean, this was grade school. Um, in the nurse's office. So um, yeah. But anyways, that's an aside. And what's interesting is that the first killer would have actually been a giant tsunami. So first, at first, they had not found very much evidence for a giant tsunami anywhere other than in the immediate area. But as they've looked more, they have started to find it. And so they have now found evidence in the Hell Creek Formation, which is actually in what is now Montana, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. So um, if you don't know, during this period of time, the North Amer American continent would have been bisected by a large inland sea that would have gone from Texas all the way up to the Arctic Circle. And so basically, when the impact hit created a such a huge impact in the oceans and so much um so many earthquake type motions that it turns out that there is a giant there was a giant tsunami that killed a ton of dinosaurs in this area which is why it's now a great place to go fossil hunting um, and so yeah um but once it hit after the tsunami, night would have rained, they suspect now, for around two years straight. 
the world's temperatures would have plummeted and only the most hardy of species survived. There's also, they've also found new evidence suggesting that the impact really did have an important role in the extinction event. However, there are other people who still are not quite sure about that. So we're going to talk about the other theory in just a second. So what this group found is that there was pretty much evidence that dinosaurs and other animals were alive and well right up until the moment of impact. So for instance, in the Hell Creek Formation, you find right under that layer of animals who were all killed very quickly in this obvious tsunami, you find dinosaur footprints right underneath that and other signs that dinosaurs were basically walking around and doing their thing. Um, But in other parts of the world, you find that the ecosystem had already deteriorated. And that is because there is another huge problem that was going on in the um, on the globe at this point. So like I said, very unlucky. And this is the eruption of what is now referred to as the Deccan Traps. And so this was a vast system of volcanoes on the Indian continent. Now, of course, at this time, it would have still been separate from Asia and located closer to where Madagascar is now. And the big thing about this was that it caused the environment to become toxic with mercury. So it turns out that most of the mercury that we find above ground nowadays is the result of volcanic activity. And so this was not just a couple of volcanic eruptions. This was a huge, it's, it's almost a mind-boggling amount of um, material that was spewed forth. And so the series of eruptions started around 250,000 years before the Chicxulub impact and continued for around 500,000 years more. So that's a huge, vast time scale. And so Princeton University paleontologist Gerda Keller suggests that the Deccan volcanism is vastly more dangerous to life on Earth than an impact. And so for her, she looked at um, shells in Europe and places like that where you could tell that before this started, the shells were perfectly normal, but as the mercury sort of sunk into the atmosphere and then into the ecosystem, the shells become brittle and not as well formed, and so you start to see a lot of die-off of marine animals from that. But I suspect that probably it's somewhere in the middle. It was pretty much a one-two punch. Um, And, of course, this is just more evidence that the dinosaurs had a pretty bad time of it at that point. But we have to keep it in perspective as well. Dinosaurs were one of the most successful, if not the most successful animals ever. They literally were on this planet for millions of years We haven't even been on this planet for a million years. (laughs) We haven't even been on this planet for half a million years. Um, And so, um, okay, maybe maybe half a million years. Um, I can't do the math in my head. I'm sorry. (laughs) um, But anyways, it is 
it was sad for them, but again, good for us. Okay. So I had one more real dinosaur story and I definitely wanted to talk about this one because it's amazing. And, um, I will definitely link to the pictures of this because that's the real payoff. Um, but before we talk about this amazing dinosaur that's been found, we are going to take a break to do some PSAs and the other sorts of things we do at this time of evening. So you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and this is Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM. Hold on for just a moment. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old, and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed-out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. iHeart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is on Saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m. on WXOJ LP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org. iHeart J-Rock will be playing rock music from Japan. Uh, J-Rock, J-Pop, and some VK. Uh, if you like that stuff, give my show a listen, please. And also follow me on Twitter at DJ Sakura 666. Thank you. Okay, we are back, and I am going to tell you about this amazing dinosaur find. So, it actually happened back in 2011 when a team of miners in Alberta, Canada found this just incredible fossil. So they discovered a, no- a notosaur, which is a cousin of uh, what I have noted is one of my favorite dinosaurs, uh, the Ankylosaurus. And so what's so amazing about this is that it's actually kept its outer layers and they have fossilized along with the rest of the dinosaur. 
And so this is an 18-foot-long behemoth. Um, it would have been one of those sort of short, tanky kind of dinosaurs. And so it's very exciting. Sean Funk, a heavy equipment operator, had the keen eye to spot the fossil's different texture and color among the surrounding rocks. And this is according to National Geographic, which broke the story last Friday. And so for six years, the specimen has lived in the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology in Alberta. And that's a place that is definitely on my wish list of museums in the world that I want to visit someday. Um, it is an amazing museum. So if you ever get the chance to be in Alberta, go there. Do not not go there. <laughs> and so it has been carefully prepared and freed from the surrounding rock. It was a very slow reveal, but it was ex and a very exciting one nonetheless, said Caleb Brown, a postdoctoral fellow at the museum and a co-author of a study describing the new species, which he expects to be published in a peer-reviewed journal this summer. But right now, we can go and look at the amazing pictures of this incredible find. Now, um, just because we talked about it last week and also because it's a point of confusion and contention... None of the soft tissue is actually preserved. It's just that all of the tissue that would have been the keratin and the armor plating and things like that were actually fossilized instead of um, usually when these kinds of dinosaurs died, most of their um, covering most of the armor plating would have fallen away and rotted and not fossilized and so what you have here is just an extremely well fossilized specimen basically with all of their with all of the skin having been fossilized and so the researchers think that what happened was the animal either died in the water um, or on the water's edge or was shortly swept into water. And it would have been that same inland sea uh, that cut through North America. And so what would have happened is that it would have then experienced what is cheerfully referred to as bloat and float. Um, so the carcass would have filled with the gases of the um, animal's decomposition, and it would have floated along. Um, and then at some stage, the animal would have exploded and fallen to the bottom. It must have fallen pretty rapidly, because we actually have a little impact crater from where it hit the bottom, Brown said. It hit the bottom pretty hard. So removal of the specimen was actually quite tricky. While it was encased in an extremely hard and heavy concretion, the actual fossil was soft as talcum powder. And in fact, when they first tried to remove the entire block, weighing in at 35,000 pounds, it split in two. So at that point, they regrouped and decided to take out the fossil in chunks. So museum technician Mark Mitchell then spent the next six years carefully revealing and gluing the specimen to create the amazing display of what is basically a flattened dinosaur in all of its spiky and armored glory. It was very low to the ground, very squat on very short legs, Brown told Live Science. The entire back, sides, neck, and tail were covered in large osteoderms, bony plates that are embedded in the skin. Now, this is what makes the dinosaur a truly remarkable find. 
In this case, those osteoderms are still preserved in the skin, Brown said. Not only that, the osteoderms are capped with layers of keratin, the same stuff your fingernails are made of. Normally, it doesn't fossilize. And so they basically were really lucky that this dinosaur landed in the exactly perfect uh, conditions in order to fossilize and survive all of these years in order to then be revealed as this amazing uh, specimen. And so the notosaur would have been a plant-eating, slow-moving animal, sort of akin to a even shorter-legged rhinoceros. And the dinosaur would have had a, a beak for gathering food. And so it didn't really have any teeth. What it would have had was a, um, it would have digested its food in a multi-chambered stomach, just like a ruminant today. And that is another thing that makes this a really remarkable find. There is actually a soccer ball sized lump of partially digested food preserved in the stomach of the animal. Researchers are hoping to analyze that soon for clues to the animal's specific diet and to what plants were around um, at the time. Now, notosaurs would have been most abundant during the Cretaceous period, which was the last large epoch um, in which the dinosaurs ruled the Earth. That was right before the uh, impact that we were talking about. Now, sadly... This is an amazing find, but it isn't complete. Despite the eagle eyes of Funk, the tail and back legs of the dinosaurs of the dinosaur were scraped away before they realized what it was. However, it is still an amazing illustration of what the dinosaur would have looked like when alive and should give researchers great information as they continue to study it. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you, if you, when you look at the pictures, cause you should go and look at the pictures. I mean, it looks like someone took the idea of what a dinosaur should look like and made a sculpture. Um, it's really that amazing. I mean, the face, you can see where the eyes were. I mean, it's just, it's, it's breathtaking. Um, at least if you're a nerd like I am. <laughs> okay. So the reason I thought about this topic was actually two different things that I learned sort of recently in passing. Um, so the first one was that I learned from watching um, a video on vultures that it turns out that the vultures from North and South America are not actually closely related to vultures from those in Africa, Eurasia, and Australia. Apparently, they're actually an example of convergent evolution. And so convergent evolution is the idea that, you know, when you have a certain niche that needs to be filled or a certain problem that needs to be overcome, sometimes nature takes the same path, even if two animals aren't related. And so that's how you get animals that are very similar and look pretty much exactly alike, but are from completely different lineages. Um, and so, or you get animals that have a particular thing that they do that is very similar, even though they're from very different lineages. And so birds from both areas have developed similar solutions to being scavengers. And so in particular, they need to be able to deal with eating rotting meat, which has a lot of pathogens in it. And so that's what's, what vultures are. They are basically 
an amazing animal that is able to um, be an end point carrier for pathogens. So basically, when a vulture ingests a pathogen, it doesn't go any further. It gets killed in their stomach, and that's it. And so vultures are extremely important. Um, and so they have a suite of similar features. Most of them have bald heads. Um, the Really, the, the big thing is that they have highly acidic stomach acid, which is how they're able to deal with all of those pathogens. They're actually also very often quite large. So I'm sure you've probably seen a turkey vulture. Um, those are the ones that we tend to have around here. And they're, they're huge. Um, one day I was waiting for the bus and there were some... Um, on the roof of a house near the bus stop. And I just, I had to take a double take the first time I saw them because they were just so huge. Um, But as I said, vultures are an extremely important part of the ecosystem. And as a case in point, we can talk about India. So you tend to probably think about vultures as being a part of India and um, Himalayan culture, especially um, Nepal and Bhutan and places like that. You know, vultures are very well known in that area. Unfortunately, in recent decades, they their numbers have plummeted. And eventually they figured out that they were being poisoned by a drug called diclofenac. And so the drug was used as an anti-inflammatory in the raising of livestock. And for a while, nobody realized that it was actually deadly to vultures. And so the, the loss of these, of these vulture populations has had huge impacts in, in India. You know, this is a country you know, where carcasses are often left out to rot. Um, and so, again, it's had really immediate consequences. Waterways have been contaminated with dangerous bacteria. Other less beneficial scavenger populations have risen, which includes rats and wild dogs. And the wild dogs um, are a problem because they, in turn, are preyed upon by leopards, which then means that there are more leopards coming out. And that leads to increased contact between humans and leopards, which doesn't usually end well. Um, And one of the really big things is that there has been a sharp increase in rabies. Um, as well as anthrax and plague, because they do have um, bubonic plague still in India. There are um, small uh, outbreaks that pop up from time to time and, you know, other mammal-borne diseases. And so it's actually killing thousands of Indians each year. And on top of all of that, on top of the decline... um, the cost of lives and the affected ecosystem, it's also costing the country an estimated $26 billion per year to treat and to deal with everything involved with the loss of this one species of, or this one collection of birds. So it seems impossible that an entire country could basically be brought to its knees because they've lost vultures. But 
that's pretty much what's going on. And in fact, the Parsi people who have practiced what is called sky burial for hundreds, if not thousands of years, where they lay their dead out to be consumed by vultures, have actually had to give up the practice due to hygiene concerns because a body that used to be consumed in a few days now can take up to six months. So yeah, (laughs) vultures are very important. Um, You know, they may not be the prettiest birds in the world, though some of them are very attractive as far as I'm concerned. But it could be argued that they are definitely one of the most important. So the next time you see a vulture, give it a salute um, because it is doing real work to keep you and everyone else uh, safe and uh, not getting rabies. (laughs) Um, So yeah, and... um, The other thing about vultures that I thought was a really cool story from recently is about Egyptian vultures, that they actually use mud as a cosmetic. And so what's really cool about this is that this is a population that is well studied. And so the phenomenon is actually called cosmic cosmetic coloration. And there are some other birds that do it, which I'll talk about at the end. But these vultures are on the Fuerteventura Island in the Canaries, which is off the coast of Africa. And so almost all of the birds are tagged and numbered by researchers who are already studying the population. And so what's cool about that is it allows them to track individual differences in pigmentation to individual animals. And so it turns out that in order to turn their normally white head and chest feathers into either a shade of brown or even a deep red, the vultures will dip their heads in red soil and swipe from side to side. It's the first documentation of this behavior in wild birds that are individually marked, says Thijs van Overveld of Donania Biological Station in Spain. The most interesting part of our observation is that there is great variation among individuals in the extent to which they paint feathers ranging from almost completely white to almost completely red. So in order to more closely study the phenomenon, the researchers set up two water stations near where they fed the vultures. One had clean water, while the other contained red soil dissolved to create a sort of muddy liquid that they could use to paint themselves. Of around 90 birds, 18 took mud baths, with a few even doing it twice. (laughs) And so interestingly, what they ended up seeing was that there really wasn't any pattern. There was no pattern in sex or age of the birds, and therefore, it's still a mystery as to why they do it. Now, the authors believe that the painting serves a visual rather than any kind of health-related purpose, such as, you know, um, preventing sunburn or keeping off parasites. They don't think that's it, because they think that if that was it, more of the animals would be doing it. And so what they suggest is that given the great effect on the general appearance of these otherwise white birds, it probably um, is visual and, um, you know, it's something that they like rather than something that they need. And so, as I said, there are other birds that do do this. The bearded vulture is known to display similar behavior, but this is generally as a signal of dominance. And other birds use environmental dyes as camouflage, including sandhill cranes and snowy ptarmigans. 
But as for the Egyptian vultures, only time and further observation will tell us if there is some hidden meaning behind these vultures' makeup choices. <laughs> okay, so let's move on now to talk about ants. To be precise, we're going to talk about the Tyrannomermex rex ant, which is, of course, named after the Tyrannosaurus rex. Again, dinos. <laughs> but it turns out that despite its name, this, act, this ant is actually a timid, finicky eater, uh, though it does occasionally turn to cannibalism. Uh, despite having been discovered more than 20 years ago, until recently, almost nothing was known about these Asian ants. Only a single specimen had been collected, and none had ever been observed alive for any length of time. That is, until Mark Wong and Gordon Young, entomologists from the National University of Singapore, discovered a colony while conducting a survey of ant diversity on, in the area. And so Wong found them living in a piece of rotting wood stuck in the ground of Singapore's Mandai region, just south of Malaysia and north of the Singapore Zoo. They were inhabiting a second-growth forest, and so it would have originally been, during the 20th century, it was orchard, orchards and rubber plantations, but now it's been left to um, go back to being forest. Now, they were able to collect the colony, which was only 13 workers, as well as some eggs, larvae, and a pupae, which is kind of a teenage <laughs> ant. Um, and so they set them up in the lab and observed them. And so because no one had done this before, any behaviors they observed would basically be new to science. And so there are three species in the Tyrannomermex uh, genus, T-Rex, which was first discovered in Malaysia in 1994, T-Dukes, which is from India, and T-Legatus from Sri Lanka. So they're all sort of Asian ants. And um, the author notes that they all have pointed snouts, which is probably why um, someone looked at them and thought T-Rex. Because they don't have any sort of, you know, the thing that most people think about T-Rexes is the short arms, which they don't really have short arms. Um, so I think it was more about the shape of their heads. And so it seems that despite having quite the moniker, uh, these ants lead rather quiet lives, mostly underground or under forest debris. Our finding of T-Rex below the ground surface highlights the need for more focused exploration of the ant communities within this environment, noted Wong. So what they said was basically like, well, when we go out to look for ants, we look on the surface of the ground. We don't do a lot of digging around, so... We're probably missing a lot of things because they're all hanging out underground, which to me seems a little self-evident, but every once in a while you have to be uh, reminded of these things. And so it turns out that what they found was that the ants were more active at night, which suggests that they are nocturnal in the wild. They were also not terribly aggressive. They would freeze and sort of curl up in the face of predators, hoping, hoping to be missed and than to be given an opportunity to run away. And interestingly, they couldn't figure out what the ants would eat. They offered them termites, smaller ants, mites, millipedes, and even honey, which is usually a favorite for ants. Now, 
Because they couldn't really find anything for them to eat, this next thing is not terribly surprising. Um, so, unfortunately, when the male pupa emerged as an adult two days into captivity, the other adult workers immediately ate it. <laughs> um, and so, uh, it was unfortunate, but also not surprising, given, given that the researchers were unable to figure out what to actually feed them. So after 10 days, the rest of the ants were euthanized and preserved for further study. So no further colonies have yet been found. Increasingly, we're finding that many ants which live underground have unique life histories and ecological relationships that are poorly understood, Wong said. There's this amazing world right beneath our feet, which we've hardly explored, and I'm excited to get started. Okay. So let's move a little bit up the food chain now to talk about the tuatara. Now, apparently, these are a small creature that you would not be faulted for thinking were lizards. But it turns out that, in fact, it is not a lizard. It is also not a dinosaur, though it has been around as long as the first dinosaurs. Not the ones that are living now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and it's actually, um, it's funny because they do actually live to be very, very old. Um, it is a reptile that is the sole survivor of its lineage. And it has a lot of weird, uh, <laughs> um, it's very weird. It thrives in low temperatures, which if you know anything about reptiles, they tend to be cold-blooded, which means they tend to need hot temperatures in order to regulate their bodies. Um, but apparently this uh, little uh, tuatara, tuatara can survive into near-freezing temperatures. And they live to be um, generally around 100. Some have gotten... Some have lived longer than that, so they're very long-lived. And they happen to also have a habit of leaving the decapitated carcasses of birds strewn across their habitat. <laughs> their habitat is the offshore islands of New Zealand, where they mostly burrow or bask in the sun. So, as many nocturnal animals do, the tuatara have large eyes that they use to spot their prey, Mostly beetles, spiders, and snails, but also the occasional lizard, frog, baby tuatara, or as I mentioned, bird. <laughs> they actually also have um, that, um, they have a feature that a lot of reptiles have, which is they have a sort of spot on the top of their head, which is also light sensitive, which sometimes is referred to as a third eye, but it's mostly just a patch of light sensing um, cells. And so why are we talking about the Tuatara? Well, this May marks the 150th year since scientists figure out, figured out that they weren't just another kind of lizard, but were rather their own distinct lineage. So ancestors of the Tuatara have probably lived in the islands of New Zealand since it first broke away from the supercontinent of Gondwana some 80 million years ago. And until the arrival of humans around 750 years ago, the Tuatara were widespread across the mainland of New Zealand. However, when humans came, they of course brought along their faithful, though generally not beloved, uh, commensal species, the rat. The Pacific rat, to be specific in this case. And now they are threatened by climate change. Like many other reptiles, 
Tuatara sex is determined by the temperature the eggs experience. Hotter temps mean more males, which is bad for overall reproduction. Currently, there's a two-pronged attack to try and save the species. Reintroduction to cooler latitudes on the mainland and a captive breeding program, both which seem to be working pretty well. Because it would be a shame if these little creatures were driven to extinction by climate change. After all, it's the last group of member of a group of reptiles called rhino, wait, rhino, co, co, cochocephalia. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, they were a diverse and widespread uh, group that lived between 240 and 60 million years ago. And so there was originally several small carnivores with scissor-like jaws. Um, of which the Tuatara is the last survivor. There would have also been sort of large, uh, chunky herbivores and aquatic reptiles with crushing tooth plates. And so what's interesting is that the Tuatara has, is on a very interesting part of the evolutionary tree. And so it makes it very important for studying evolution. Um, and also they're really important to, uh, local culture. So Tuatara in Maori means peaks on back and the reptiles are regarded as teonga or treasure and they're viewed as guardians of knowledge. And I did note that there was a, uh, that they lived to be over a hundred. And so there was actually a Tuatara named Henry who was celebrated for becoming a father at 111 years old and then met Prince Harry several years later. So yeah, they're weird. They murder birds, but they've got style and are an important part of an ecosystem that should definitely be protected. Okay, we're out of time, um, but I did want to mention the second thing that I found out recently that I thought was very cool very quickly, which is that hippopotamuses cannot actually swim. <laughs> so if you want to look into that a little bit more um, on your own, or I will probably post something on the Facebook. Um, so again, you can find me, obviously, on Facebook, um, Evidence Based Radio. And uh, that is it for tonight. So do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next.